Welcome back to another episode of the Insurance versus History podcast, where we examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history even when it really, really tried. I'm Meredith, your host, and I have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. You want to know how insurance works? History can help. We'll learn a little history and a little insurance, but I promise to make both entertaining. What can I say? I find both topics wake me up just as effectively as a cup of coffee. Ah, coffee. You might even have a cup of it in front of you right now. Did you know that coffee is actually the most popular psychoactive drug in the world and the second most valuable exported legal commodity after oil? Amazing, right? You might not be surprised to hear that the U.S. is the number one consumer of coffee. Americans consume nearly half of the entire world's coffee. And you might think, well, that makes sense given the number of Starbucks that are located five minutes from my house. But actually, this was true in the U.S. at the end of the 19th century. We're talking 1890s, people. Well before anyone ever thought about an almond milk mocha latte with three pumps of sugar-free caramel. But did you also know that we can give coffee quite a bit of credit for establishing the modern insurance industry? No? Did you know that a coffee shop in London eventually became the biggest insurance marketplace in the world? And that you can insure almost anything, really anything, in that marketplace? Well, you're about to find out. Today, our topic is coffee and Lloyd's of London. While researching this episode, I learned a lot of interesting things about coffee and Lloyd's. But one thing just blew me away. Did you know that coffee actually came before tea in England? I didn't know that. I figured England always had tea, and then coffee came in and was fashionable for a while before tea came back into style and stayed there. It's sort of the English national drink. But the English were crazy for coffee long before tea took over. In fact, the whole world was crazy for coffee for several hundred years prior to tea taking the globe by storm. Coffee in some form has been around for a millennium at least, but it took a long time for coffee to migrate to Europe from where it was originally cultivated, hundreds of years. The birthplace of coffee, which might not be a surprise, was Ethiopia. One of the very first mentions in print of the existence of coffee was in the 10th century, when an Arabian physician named Razes mentioned coffee in his writings. But this wasn't the coffee that we think of, you know, the brew that is percolated and roasted. This is the coffee leaves being chewed, or maybe they made a tea out of it, or even wine. The first mentions of coffee being prepared that would look even remotely familiar to how we do it today would have been in the 16th century. Mind you, I don't think any of us would want to drink the coffee of the 16th century today. For example, one instruction manual of the time provided the following instructions. Take any quantity of ye coffee berry you please and put into a frying pan or the like and hold it over an easy fire. Keeping it continually stirringly, it burns not. The berry at first is white and after some drying will burn brown and at length be black. 
When you have thus well dried it, all the brownest of ye berry be turned into perfect black, then beat it in a mortar, and sift it through a fine sieve, and take ye quantity as above mentioned. Brewing techniques have improved a lot since then. Coffee then, too, was probably not nearly as strong as coffee today. You would likely boil this coffee for 15 minutes or so with two ounces of coffee to three or four cups of water. Modern coffee drinkers would typically add one ounce of coffee to one and one half cup water. I mean, not to mention we don't boil our coffee grounds, oh, six or seven times during the day to get more coffee. Back then, the thought was, why waste that two ounces on just one pot? When coffee finally made it to England in the 17th century, it was the perfect time for the drink and for the culture that developed around it. Originally, there were some business people who would sell it out on the street like other types of street food. But before long, savvy businessmen saw an opportunity for a new public space where coffee could be consumed. Partly this was because in the 17th century, there weren't a lot of public indoor spaces where you could go and discuss business or literature or politics. I mean, sure, you could go to the tavern, but it was loud and boisterous, and in order to stay, you had to keep drinking. So at some point, discussion tended to devolve as you got steadily drunker. In fact, because most people weren't actually drinking water, given that it was not safe to drink most of the time, Historians assume that most people in England in the 17th century were, frankly, at least slightly drunk all of the time, wine and beer being much safer to consume than water. What if you established a quieter venue where you could provide guests a dish of coffee, something that didn't get you drunk, and no time limit for hanging around? And it's true, they didn't actually provide a cup of coffee it was more like a small bowl with a saucer underneath, hence the dish of coffee. This idea caught on quick. The first mention of a coffee establishment in London was in 1652, when a man named Pasqua Rosé, an immigrant who may or may not have been Greek or Turkish, started an open-air stall business selling coffee, and then he opened an official storefront coffee shop in 1683. By 1734, just 51 years later, there were thousands of coffee houses all over the city. In fact, if you categorize the number of different establishments in London to say that there were X many butchers or X many taverns, coffee houses would be at the top of the list with the most locations in the city of London at this time. So I guess it was a little like Starbucks after all. But a place that serves coffee and pretty much only one thing, coffee, was pretty generic. At some point fairly early on, business owners had to think about how to diversify and make their coffee house the one coffee house you wanted to be at, rather than the one next door. As a result, some coffee house owners started to try and make their business a destination, rather than just a place that served one drink. And this decision would have long-reaching implications for a number of industries, not just insurance. In the late 17th and 18th centuries, news was worth its weight in gold, and like gold, it was hard to get a hold of. Newspapers in England at this time were a dismal affair. They were typically one page, published occasionally, and didn't cover much information at all. Obviously, there was no TV or internet or radio, and even the Postal Service, a.k.a. the Royal Mail, was so slow that it could take months for a letter to get from, say, Edinburgh to London, if it got there at all. In fact, the only way you could get a lot of timely information about what was happening in the world or in business or in pretty much any other topic was through knowing the right people who could tell you. 
For example, there was no central place or written document that would show you the arrivals and departures of ships from England, or what was on those ships, or even the average price of a commodity. For example, what was the cost of coffee? And so the only way to know was to find someone who knew. So coffee shops saw this opportunity to become places where you could get the news, not just from the newspapers, but through those right people who came to the coffee shops. Owners encouraged people to come to the coffee shop and share their news, whether it was the arrival of a ship in harbor or a notice of a lost item. They stocked their coffee shops with all of the newspapers, as meager as they were. They had tables that provided pens, ink, paper, and boards where you could post notices or information. They acted as de facto postal services, lost and found centers, and auction houses. Some coffee houses even started their own newspapers. The Spectator and the Tatler were two of them. In fact, Londoners were more likely to read the newspaper in a coffee house than buying their own copy. You could learn so much from these coffee houses that they even began being called penny universities, places where people of all educational and social backgrounds could get access to all kinds of information. And you could regularly attend a coffee house that was focused on your particular interests. Interested in politics, literature, theater, playwriting, intellectual discourse, they all had their own coffee houses. Where your coffee house was located also affected what you provided. If you were closer to the Royal Exchange, which was a public building established for commerce, you were more business-focused. If you were closer to the fashion district, well, you catered to a different crowd. For example, the Jerusalem Coffee House in Cooper's Court was focused on merchants and ship captains who mainly sailed to and sold products from China and India. Jonathan's Coffee House in Exchange Alley specialized in information about commodities pricing. Child's Coffee House by St. Paul's Cathedral catered to the clergy. Two coffee houses, Nando's and the Grecian, were located by the Inns of Court, which was the center of legal learning in London. Therefore, these two coffee houses were mostly frequented by lawyers and law students. Chapter Coffee House was the home of printers and booksellers. Will's Coffee House was a place for wits and poets, and in fact, the author John Dryden was a fixture there if you wanted to meet or talk to him. But if you wanted to participate in coffee house culture, there were some norms you had to follow. In fact, a coffee man named Paul Greenwood even put a short poem together in 1674 to instruct new coffee house visitors about how to behave. The Rules and Orders of the Coffee House Enter, sirs, freely, but first, if you please, peruse our civil orders, which are these. First, gentry, tradesmen, all are welcome hither, and may without affront sit down together. Preeminence of place none here should mind, but take the next fit seat that he can find. Nor need any, if finer persons come, rise up to assign to them his room. To limit men's expense we think not fair, but let him forfeit twelve pence that shall swear, He that shall any quarrel here begin, shall give each man a dish to tone the sin. And so shall he whose compliments extend so far to drink in coffee to his friend. Let noise of loud disputes be quite forborne. No maudlin lovers here in corners mourn. But be all be brisk in talk, but not too much. On sacred things let none presume to touch nor profane scripture, nor saucily wrong affairs of state with an irreverent tongue. Let mirth be innocent, and each man see that all his jests without reflection be. To keep the house more quiet and from blame, we banish hence cards, dice, and every game. 
nor can allow of wagers that exceed five shillings, which oft-times much trouble breed. Let all that's lost or forfeited be spent in such good liquor as the house doth vent, and customers endeavor to their powers for to observe still seasonable hours. Lastly, let each man what he calls for pay, and so you're welcome to come every day. Eventually, a budding businessman named William Loy decided to open his own coffee house in 1689. In 1691, he moved his business to be closer to the Royal Exchange. The Royal Exchange was a big central trading floor, surrounded by an arcade of small stores, and it was the central hub for the 1,600 or so merchants who were working in London at that time. By the next year, in 1692, we know that William Lloyd was advertising his business in a London newspaper called The Gazette, and actively marketing himself to the merchant class by advertising for an auction of ship's cargo to be sold at the coffee shop. Lloyd knew that there were very few places in the Royal Exchange to meet to actually discuss business in detail. That building wasn't exactly full of rentable meeting rooms, and so he positioned his business to serve that need. He saw the need to supply merchants with information like ship landings, ship departures, cargo manifests, and commodities pricing. Like many others, he made sure to get all the news he could about anything and everything, but specifically he did focus on what was important to the merchants who drank there. In fact, he even created his own newspaper for a while. Due to his business savvy as well as his location, he became a home for many merchants who specialized in seafaring vessels and a location where merchants sold the goods from those ships. Lloyd's became known as a place where you could sell off merchandise that you had brought in by ship, especially wine, and prizes and other goods that would have come in through admiralty orders. Goods that came in through admiralty orders, you say? That's stuff England stole from other countries' ships, by the way. Note that the first coffee house was established in 1652, years before the Great London Fire in 1666. If you had listened to my Gangs of New York episode, you might remember that property insurance in London really established itself after the Great Fire of London, and that by 1690, one in ten buildings in London was insured for loss due to fire. While Lloyd's Coffee House was established around 1689, which was quite a bit later than the Great Fire of London, there's nothing according to Lloyd's historians to suggest that underwriting and insurance was being done at Lloyd's for some time. But as it became the home for people interested in the operations of merchant ships, the coffee shop was well positioned for the further evolution of insurance, and in particular, marine insurance. What we today call marine insurance has been around in some form or other for a thousand years. Historians seem to agree it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, form of insurance. So, what is marine insurance? Well, it's easier to start with the why than the what. Why would you need marine insurance? Well, first of all, ships were expensive, and since they were ships, they didn't stay in one place like a house. As the ship's owner, you knew where they were supposed to go, say, a ship contracted to pick up spices in India. But unless that ship was in harbor in London... Most of the time you knew the ship was out there somewhere and that it was supposed to go to a certain place, but at any given time you really had no idea exactly where it was and what it was doing. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And then once that ship picked up its cargo, now you had a ship somewhere, again, you didn't always know exactly where, on its way back to London filled with expensive product that you had paid for. 
Overall, it was a very precarious business that cost a lot of capital to participate in. If the ship was lost, you were out a tremendous amount of money. If the ship made it back to London, you could make a tremendous amount of money. This was the risk, and it was a big one. There were a couple of ways you could mitigate some of this risk through early insurance products so that if your ship was lost or your cargo was lost or both, you wouldn't lose your shirt. The first is something called bottomry. Yes, I know. Let's move on. Which was a contract between the ship's owner, let's make that you in this example, and another person, often another merchant, where you borrowed money up front from that other merchant to either upgrade your ship or repair your ship before a specific voyage. The ship was your collateral, and the guarantee you would pay back the merchant after your successful voyage made you lots of money. But what happened if the ship never made it back to London? Well, then the merchant lending you the money would no longer be able to get it back from you. That money was just gone forever, and they couldn't come after you to get it some other way. Or, and also very common, was something similar called respondentia, where the merchant would contribute some funds to help you purchase your cargo if the ship reached its destination. So you might think, hmm, why would any merchant provide money to these ship owners if there was so much potential they would lose it? Well, they got to charge what was called maritime interest on their loans. So what's maritime interest? Well, it's a legally unrestricted interest rate. So that merchant could charge any interest rate they wanted as long as the other party in the contract, the ship's owner, agreed to it. Woof. Other types of marine coverage included ensuring the costs associated with the voyage itself or the ship itself. But notice that nothing I've talked about already involved what we would call an actual insurance company. And that was the case with marine insurance for some time. What you did see developed was a system of what the insurance world now calls participation or subscription, which would eventually become the model for much of insurance around the world. So take our example above. What if that merchant who was fronting the money to the ship's owner didn't want to take on all the risk of losing his investment, but at the same time was okay with sharing the profits as well if the ship's voyage was successful? Well, that merchant might ask his friends to join him in the risk and the reward. And if they agreed, they would sign their names under the contract with the details of the amount of risk they had agreed to take on. Because they signed their names under the contract, they were called underwriters. And all of this collided with the coffeehouse world because at the end of the 1600s, as coffeehouses were becoming popular hubs for business and intellectual thought, the number of ships hauling goods increased exponentially. The last half of the 17th century established England as a shipping titan, particularly through the operations of two companies, the Dutch West India Company and Britain's Royal African Company. And yes, Britain is part of the actual name of that company. England also expanded their colonial empire into India and into places like the Caribbean, all of which required sea travel. Not everyone was happy with coffeehouse culture. The rise of the coffeehouse just happened to coincide with a period in England that was unstable both politically and culturally. You might recall from history class that the 17th century had two English civil wars, the abolishment of the monarchy, a civil government under Oliver Cromwell, then the reestablishment of the monarchy, not to mention a whole lot of dissension and strife about whether or not Catholics were welcome in the English government especially as royals. 
places in London where people of all religious and social backgrounds could come together, discuss anything they wanted, and to read all the news and all the different opinion pamphlets floating around. Not really a surprise that some people took issue with it. When you research this topic, though, one pamphlet that always comes up is something published in 1674, which was called the Women's Petition Against Coffee. It's a little racy even for 1674, but it's worth a listen, so I've included a short snippet of it here. The occasion of which insufferable disaster, after a serious inquiry and discussion of the point by the learned of the faculty, we can attribute to nothing more than the excessive use of that newfangled, abominable, heathenish liquor called coffee, which riffling nature of her choicest treasures and drying up the radical moisture, has so eunuched our husbands, and crippled our more kind gallants, so that they are become as impotent as age, and as unfruitful as those deserts whence that unhappy berry is said to be brought. For the continual sipping of this pitiful drink is enough to bewitch men of two and twenty, and tie up the codpiece point without a charm. It renders them that use it as lean as famine, as riveled as envy, or an old meager hag overridden by an incubus. They come from it with nothing moist but their snotty noses, nothing stiff but their joints, nor standing but their ears. They pretend twill keep them waking, but we find by scurvy experience they sweep quietly enough after it. A betrothed queen might trust herself abed with one of them, without the nice caution of a sword between them, nor can all the art we use revive them from this lethargy, so unfit they are for action, that like young train-band men when called upon duty, their ammunition is wanting. Peraventure they present, but cannot give fire, or at least do, but flash in the pan, instead of doing execution. So, did women actually have problems with coffee houses? Well, probably not. Modern historians believe that this pamphlet was not written by women, but rather likely by members of the church or the government. But what was women's role in the coffeehouse culture? Did they even have one? Depending on which book you look at about coffeehouse culture in England, historians might assert that women had no place in coffeehouses and, in fact, weren't even allowed inside them, or that women did exist in this space, but only because they worked in coffeehouses and were an attraction to the men that visited them, or you would read that virtuous women never went to coffee houses, but that there were some women that owned coffee houses, all of which were actually running brothels. It's pretty obvious looking at the historical record that there's a lot more work to do about women's roles in these locations. I found a reference back in 1660 of a Ms. Huzzy, who was apparently the owner of a coffee house, but also accused of procurement, aka prostitution. There's quite a bit in every book I looked at about a coffee shop owner called Maul King, who very certainly ran a brothel out of her coffee house. But I suspect you could probably find some male owners that did the same. In fact, the idea of women and coffee houses spawned a number of stories and plays in the 18th century, especially about those so-called licentious acts that supposedly took place around these establishments run by women. There was no law in place that women couldn't participate in coffeehouse culture, just an assumption that women who wanted to be viewed as virtuous would never in a million years set foot in a coffeehouse. 
What we do know for certain is that women did own coffee houses, though there probably weren't a lot of them. We know women worked in them, even in Lloyd's Coffee House. I mean, these were family businesses for the most part, so of course the women of the family would participate. There was even a coffee house in Bath that catered specifically to women. Outside of England, in Boston, where the coffee house flourished starting in 1670, though these establishments were something between a tavern and a coffee house, so it was a little different. Women were commonly owners. I suspect as more research is done, we'll find that a few women at least may have participated in coffee house culture in the same way that men did, though we know that much of women's participation in political and literary discourse, at this time at least, probably took place in salons or private homes. It's hard to say whether the women's petition against coffee made a difference to what came next, but it certainly indicated that a number of people were becoming increasingly concerned about the effect of the egalitarian coffeehouse culture on England. The very next year, in 1675, which was some 15 years before William Lloyd established his own coffeehouse, King Charles II even tried to ban coffee altogether. He believed, and probably rightly, that coffee houses were places where revolutionaries and independent thinkers got together and probably spent a lot of time talking about English government and the king. In 1675, the king issued a decree to ban coffee houses as of January 10, 1676. Almost immediately, the coffee lovers in his cabinet went to work and the decree was undone on January 8, 1676, just two days before it was supposed to go into effect. His decree is entertaining to say the least, so let's take a listen. Whereas it is most apparent that the multitude of coffee houses of late years set up and kept within this kingdom, the Dominion of Wales and the town of Berwick upon Tweed, and the great resort of idle and disaffected persons to them, have produced very evil and dangerous effects. For that in such houses, and by occasion of the meetings of such persons therein, diverse, false, malicious, and scandalous reports are devised and spread abroad to the defamation of His Majesty's government and to the disturbance of the peace and quiet of the realm. His Majesty hath thought it fit and necessary that the said coffee houses be put down and suppressed, and doth by this his royal proclamation strictly charge and command all manner of persons that they or any of them do not presume from and after the 10th day of January next ensuing to keep any public coffee house, nor to utter or sell by retail in his, her, or their house or houses any coffee, chocolate, sherbet, or tea, as they will answer the contrary at their utmost perils. And His Majesty doth further hereby declare that if any person or persons shall take upon them, him or her, after his, her or their, license or licenses recalled, or otherwise without license, to sell by retail, as aforesaid, any of the liquors, aforesaid, that then the person or persons so offending receive the severest punishments that may by law be inflicted. God save the king. Eventually, coffee house culture faded, partly because of the changing tastes of Londoners, who were starting to get very into tea. The height of the coffee house was between 1660 and the end of the 18th century. At first, coffee houses tried to get around this by serving tea as well as coffee 
but the culture of tea just wasn't a good fit for the coffee house. Tea culture was very different than coffee culture. It was more refined, and it actively included women. It was expensive, so it was a symbol of wealth to drink it, and it was very fashionable at court. And as you definitely remember from your history classes, the English government saw tea as a significant source of income through the assessment of taxes, not just on those upstart American colonists, but also on the English citizens back home. And as a result, they really encouraged the drinking of tea. Before the 18th century, tea imports were sporadic at best, but the East India Company changed all that, and English consumption changed as a result. In 1720, about 900,000 pounds of tea arrived on English shores every year. By 1750, that amount had increased to 3.7 million pounds annually. In addition, the world of news was evolving too. In 1695, a long-standing law on the English books regulating the censorship of publications expired, which greatly increased press freedom. In fact, between 1690 and 1720, newspaper circulation went from 1 million to an astounding 14 million annually. New news publications popped up all over the place, and the need for a central location to get all the news declined. By the 1740s, the coffee house was well on its way to decline. Some coffee houses evolved. For example, the Jerusalem Coffee House in Cooper's Court, which I mentioned before was the home of many merchants and ship owners who did business with China and India, eventually became the unofficial headquarters of the East India Company. Jonathan's Coffee House in Exchange Alley, which was originally a place you could visit to find out the cost of various commodities, became the first modern stock exchange. And of course then, there was Lloyd's. William Lloyd died in 1712, but his son-in-law continued the business. And in 1720, the English government officially established that any marine insurance had to be placed within two marine insurance companies that had received approval from the government to operate. Except there was a massive hole you could drive a truck through in that bill. It was true that other insurance companies outside of the two chartered companies could not write marine insurance, but individuals, yes, individuals, could write insurance with impunity. And the bill even provided some protection for them to do that that they hadn't had before. So those individuals who'd been writing contracts, many of which at this point were also loyal Lloyd's coffeehouse drinkers, could grow and evolve, and they did. The two chartered insurance companies that were supposed to take over the marine insurance market, well, not surprisingly, they never could find employees who had the level of knowledge and sophistication of the individuals who were writing marine insurance on their own, and after some bad losses, decided to ignore marine insurance and focus on other types of insurance, property, for example, instead. For Lloyd's, the coffee house eventually closed, but the name lived on as the members moved into a building near the Royal Exchange in the late 18th century and began setting up a more formal insurance operation. For sure, the underwriters working at Lloyd's weren't the only marine insurance underwriters in London, but they did dominate. And though there have been a few physical moves of Lloyd's of London around the city over the years, Lloyd's of London lives on today as a massive force in insurance. But just to be completely clear, Lloyd's never became an insurance company in the same way that you might think of AIG or State Farm. Lloyd's isn't an insurance company. 
Just like the period when Lloyd's Coffeehouse was in operation, the underwriters at Lloyd's, as we call them today, are made up of many different entities. Now, these days, they're mainly insurance companies and not individuals, but that wasn't always the case. And how that happened is a whole other story and well worth examining in another episode. Basically, you can think of Lloyd's as a giant farmer's market. Different insurance companies set up booths there to sell insurance instead of fruits and vegetables. You might have a number of booths selling the same kind of insurance, just like there are usually a few booths at any farmer's market selling potatoes. In the case of Lloyd's, these can be very, very, very big potatoes. When I started in insurance many years ago, I had no idea what Lloyd's was. The only reference I had was the occasional news article about some supermodel's legs being insured by Lloyd's. And it's true that one of the amazing things about Lloyd's is because there are so many companies participating in the marketplace that you really can insure just about anything, even the legs of a famous model. But Lloyd's has had enormous impact on the insurance industry and therefore the entire economy of the world. You might think that because the marketplace is based in London that it would primarily insure English risks, but that's not true. The majority of the insurance placed there is actually for American businesses. This is because the companies providing insurance through Lloyd's are providing what we call a non-admitted insurance product, which means that they're not subject to many of the restrictive provisions that U.S. states and the U.S. federal government requires of insurance companies domiciled in the U.S. Basically, if you're domiciled in the U.S. and you go bankrupt, the government provides some protection for your clients. If you're an insurer that is non-admitted, especially if you're outside the United States, if you go bankrupt, there is no protection for your clients. Lloyd's and its participating insurers would say that this makes them more agile, more flexible, and faster to respond to emerging market needs. It can also mean that they can provide insurance to people and businesses that are considered higher risk. For example, a lot of insurance in flood or hurricane-prone areas is written this way. I find it really fascinating, and there's just far too much about the modern operations of Lloyd's to cover here. Maybe in a different episode, we can talk about how asbestos claims bankrupted many people who worked at Lloyd's and created a massive crisis, even for people you wouldn't expect. It's pretty obvious that without coffeehouse culture, Lloyd's may not have ever existed. So, in the great insurance versus history debate, history and coffee wins here. Would insurance have evolved without coffee and coffee houses? Definitely. But by developing an insurance industry based on the idea of sharing risk among many different people, and eventually insurers, Lloyd's allowed for the insuring of bigger things and allowed for the provision of more insurance overall. It facilitated the development of a larger, more sophisticated world economy that could take bigger risks and, well, build bigger buildings and bigger companies and bigger ships. So we raise a cup of coffee in tribute, or raise a dish of coffee, if you will, and thank the English coffee houses of the 17th and 18th centuries for helping to establish the modern economy. A huge thanks to my editor and talented voiceover actor, Zach Stinnett. You should hire him. His information, along with links and book suggestions about this topic, in case you're interested in learning more, can be found in my show notes at insurance versus, that's V-S, 
history.libsyn.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something.